0: Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm here with Will Richardson. Will was a public school educator for 22 years. He is co founder of the Big Questions Institute. He is a speaker, consultant, and writer. And I'm super excited to be talking with you today about the current state of education and where you see education going in the future. So, welcome, Will, and thank you for your time today.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it.
1: So, the Big Questions Institute is dedicated to helping educators and leaders develop mindsets and skill sets to navigate a new future for learners. We have a chaotic and complex moment, and your work is to help educational leaders use inquiry and uncover hidden opportunities for growth. Can you tell us more about the Institute and more about this work?
2: Yeah, well, it is a chaotic moment, isn't it? I mean, it, it's one that uh, I don't think too many people have many answers to many of the things or many of the questions that are being uh, asked right now. And so my colleague Homa Tavangar and I um, last year, late 2019, but really m- middle of last year, um, just decided to kind of go full, fully forward with this idea that we have to meet this moment with fearless inquiry, that it's a time for us to be asking big existential questions because that's what the world is, is challenging us with right now. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to focus on helping people contextualize this moment as much as possible, making sure that they're living uh, as much as we can as well, but making sure that we're all kind of living in the realistic moment that's happening right now in terms of what's happening with the world, what's happening with education, what's happening with a lot of other things, you know, business, social justice, politics, all that kind of stuff. And then trying to frame some important questions that we need to begin to grapple with in this moment as educators that hopefully will get us to a point when we kind of come out of this moment and things hopefully become a little, uh, we, we regain our equilibrium a little bit more, that we'll have some, some starting points for moving forward in a different way from where we were before the pandemic. And it's not just the pandemic, right? I mean, it's a whole bunch of things that are happening. It's the whole social justice movement. It's climate change. It's uh, the political democratic upheaval that we're experiencing in many parts of the world. And a lot of these challenges or a lot of these, these issues right now really are existential and cut to the root of our work in the world. So just trying to get to a point where people don't go back to normal. Um, because we don't think normal is a great was, was all that great to begin with. It led us to a many of these issues that we're trying to trying to deal with right now. And so to not go back to normal, we have to ask some, some pretty fundamental and different questions about the world and about education.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's, it's one of the things that I found really exciting about this chaotic moment in time is that people are asking those questions. And for the first time, you know I, I don't have a huge history in education. Um, my school's been open three and a half years, and I've been kind of in the field for maybe eight or nine now. But it's the first time that I've seen people really asking questions about, you know, education specifically. Like, what are our kids learning, and why are they learning that, and how are they learning that, and why are we doing things this way? And I know previously, most of what I saw was people would just, oh, this is the school down the street. We'll sign our kid up. We'll send them. Um, but now. As educations come into the home and as parents are seeing what kids are learning and the ways they're learning, it's really opened up kind of this can of worms of why are we doing the things that we're doing? And you mentioned a you know a much broader realm of challenges that definitely our country is facing from social justice and racial justice and the current political scheme. There's definitely all sorts of things and all sorts of different ways that we need to be talking to students because our kids are gonna be the ones that are coming into this you know, in the coming years and need to have the skills to be able to, to deal with it and to, to move forward. So you talked about going back to normal and you have a new ebook coming out next week titled Nine Questions Schools Need to Ask to Avoid Going Back to Normal, since normal wasn't that great to begin with. So can you share a few key learnings or a few of the key points that you make in the book?
2: Yeah, well I, I think uh substantially it's it's what I just talked about in terms of the moment that we're in. But but we don't think that this is a moment necessarily to innovate and to kind of try new technologies or just tweak your mission statement or build a new building or you know, bring in a different curriculum. That may all happen at some point, but too often we've seen those those kinds of decisions and those kinds of choices as band-aids that don't really last for very long. And so Um, For us, it's about getting back to some fundamentals about who we are, what our work is, what we believe. So our nine questions run around things like what's sacred to us in schools? What are the most important things that we do that we want to make sure 10, 15, 20 years down the road that we're still doing? Uh, One of our other questions is why are we, you know, fill in the blank? Why are we separating kids out by age? Why are we siloing out curriculum? Why are we whatever you want to fill that question out with? So many of the things that we do in schools don't really make a lot of sense in a learning context. And we have to interrogate those uh, before we can make decisions on how to best move forward. And, and that's a, another one, you know, is, is just answering the question, what is learning, defining it? I think uh, in the 15 years or so that I've been speaking and writing and kind of traveling the world talking to schools all over the place and teachers all over the place is that there really is not very much coherence around that word around what it means I know that my own two kids when they were in school it wasn't a very coherent experience for them because they had to figure out what learning meant to the teacher in block one then they went to block two and had to learn it all over again or figure it out all over again block three was the same way so yeah, so we really felt like we sat down and we said, you know, what are the things that we need to be talking about? What are the things that lay the foundation for change, moving forward that is both relevant and sustainable? And we really felt like these nine questions that we wrote this ebook around it, we really feel like these nine questions that are coming out next week are the ones are good starting points at least. They may not be the only nine and they may not be the perfect set of nine, obviously. But for us, they created a good frame for conversations around what, what does a post-pandemic school look like? What is, a, what is a school in 2021 around the world, wherever you are? What is its role now? What, what are we going to do now? Because you know we're not the same any longer. Uh, the world is not the same. Um, certainly, again, not just be- because of the pandemic. But I mean, when you think about <laughs> what's happened in the last 12 months, you know, here in the US, especially, but everywhere in the world. And when you think about what's on our doorstep in terms of climate change, and in terms of some of the other challenges that are absolutely coming our way, we can't think of ourselves the same way any longer, we have different roles to play, we have a different value in the world right now. And we have to we have to get to that before we can figure out what we do next. So all of those are kind of framed with the kind of more meta questions, who are we now? And what do we want to become? And the, the way we answer the, both of those is to just kind of, okay, so who are we now when it comes to learning? Who are we now in terms of whether or not we're literate in the world? And, and then who do we want to become based on the answers that we give to those questions? So we're hoping that it's a frame for people to start to use as they think about, you know, what, what do we want to create after this crisis is over and after we're living in a very, very different world?
1: And do you offer any direction along with that? Is this primarily looking at the questions or are you also offering kind of a way to go or or I guess another way to think about it in all of the conversations that you've had in your travels and your talks? Are you seeing any sort of cohesion around you know what is learning and where do we want to go?
2: So there are a lot of questions in there, right? So uh, <laughs> taking the, kind of the last one there, there really isn't a lot of cohesion, but We think of our work more as helping people frame the questions. There's a book that has influenced my thinking a lot. It's a book called The Answer to How is Yes by Peter Block, right? And in that book, what he says is that, you know, the answer to how is really in the room if you're asking the right question. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to help people figure out what are those questions that they need to be asking. And so our help with that is we we're providing some audits you know, when we ask, are you literate? Well, let's figure out. Let's How do we do that? How can we kind of step through that and interrogate that and then come to some answer as to whether or not we are literate, considering the world is so interconnected and considering how easy it is to create information and share it and, you know, consume it and all that stuff. So if we get a baseline for that, then the answer to how do we become more literate or how do we function in the world with literacy is really up to the individual school or institution, which are all different, right? That's going to be a different answer for your school than it is for the 3,200 student high school that, you know, my kids went to or for Colgate University where my son is at or whatever else, right? They may be similar answers in that, Um, Hopefully we'll understand literacy or we'll understand power, which is another question that we ask, you know, where is power right now? We may understand that in some similar way, but how that plays out in our in our institutions is going to be is going to be different from school to school. I'll just say, too, you know, it was it was interesting yesterday I was doing a session. We've been doing a lot of work with international school heads. And the question came up, you know, uh, because of everything that's happening, obviously, we're recording this at a pretty interesting and fraught moment in the United (laughs) States right? between the the uh, January 6th riots on the Capitol and, you know, Joe Biden's inauguration, which is coming up next week. And someone asked, you know, how do we talk about this stuff with our kids? There's so much stuff in the world going on. How do we really talk about that? And, you know, my answer to it was that I'm not sure that we, we necessarily have to convince them that we have the answers to those types of events or that we understand them totally. But what we can really help them do is to frame the questions that they're asking, because a lot of the questions that people are asking right now probably aren't the ones that we need to be fundamentally talking about. So same thing. You can ask a thousand questions about schools right now, but what are the ones that really get to the core of the work? What are the ones where we really need to spend time before a lot of those other questions even become relevant? And before we can even think about getting answers to or responses to the types of challenges that we're facing?
1: Yeah, I feel like you're throwing out a lot of questions (laughs) and a lot of ideas that just don't, you know, there's no easy answer. Um, And everybody... You know, if you ask 10 people what the root cause is or what the core question is, you're probably going to get 10 different answers and they're all going to be right for how you, you know, you're looking at a problem or how you're looking at a situation. And so it becomes really interesting then when we do try and, you know, lead a classroom discussion or talk to our own kids about what's happening in the world and about where we're going. And, you know, for me, it's about, you know, why did you start a school? Why are we doing this in class? But also, you know, on January 6th, when there's a huge insurrection at the Capitol, it's, well, we have to talk about this. Like we're living through history. And that, that's the way we framed it a lot at our school is we're living through history. And whether we like it or not, we are. And this is a tumultuous moment, unlike any that I've ever seen in my life. And so we need to be continually processing what's happening so that our kids do have some understanding at least of the events that transpired, and then they can dig deeper and ask their own questions. Um, and that really becomes part of what is learning as they start to ask those deeper questions and search for answers and try and figure out their understanding of what's happening and what's going on and and what the world likes and you know world looks like and how we solve those problems. Which leads us into more of like a student-centered learning, right? And student-centered inquiry. Um, And that's one of the things that I talk about a lot. And one of the things that I hear from educators a lot is that learning and schooling needs to be more student-centered. So I guess from your point of view, how can we move to a system where right now we have a lot of educators who like to share information and then test students to spit that information back? versus educators who are really prompting students to dig into this inquiry and to ask the deeper questions and to have some student-led discovery. Yeah, how do we make that shift? Or do you have any ideas?
2: <laughs> that's a really difficult question, right? Because um, that, that's steeped in, in narrative. It's steeped in the kind of mental models that we have around what schools are and what they're supposed mm-hmm. to do. It's steeped in what we perceive the value of school to be. I mean, there's a a, a very kind of interesting tension between the expressed purpose of school, which is to you know, help help kids become um, functioning members of the public and be literate and contribute and all that kind of stuff. But then there's the kind of, Unexpressed purpose of school, which is to make sure my kid gets more privilege, (laughs) you know, makes it make sure my kid is on the path to to more success or, you know, that it's a very private kind of good type of uh, conversation. So, you know, there's all sorts of of things that go into that. You know, how do we change it um, or how do we make it more learner centered? I think one of the things that we can take away from this past year, and again, I'll go back to that example of that group of international school uh, heads that we've been working with. Um, we've been meeting uh, 43 weeks now, um, every Thursday morning for an hour. And it's the sessions that we have have been a lot about how do I do this? How do, you know, all of a sudden, you know, here's what's happening in my school. A kid got COVID, our teacher has it. You know, what are the protocols? What are you doing? You know, so we're learning from each other, which is really powerful, right? And part of it's been kind of just therapy too, you know, just a chance to, to maybe just breathe and just to get support from other folks. What I've tried to remind them is, or, and I've asked it, you know, I've done it through inquiry to asking them a question. And the question I've asked is, is this one of the most powerful learning moments you've ever had? And they all say, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, just the day to day, almost minute to minute problem solving that they have to do. Um has been so intense, and it's been uh, it's been powerful on lots of different levels. And they all go, yeah, I have never I, I I've never learned as much in a short amount of time, and it's just been exhausting, but it's also been really rich. And I'll say, Well, how does learning in your classrooms look like the learning that you've done in the last year?' And they all kind of just go, yeah, not very much at all. <laughs> um, the learning that's happening in their classrooms is not based on there uh, students having uh, a real interest in a particular question or a particular problem to solve students don't have a lot of agency you know in terms of choosing what path to take through uh, their okay. school experience there are separations in terms of again content and age and teachers and all that kind of stuff where you know we learn now kind of in the big soup of all different types of environments and people and 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 topics so i think the first Kind of getting back to your question, I think the first step is that we have to change the picture in people's heads. We have to show lots of powerful examples of learning that don't look like what most of us experience. That are really different because of the moment that we're in and the the requirements of this moment, but also because of the affordances of technology and of of the internet. I mean, let's be honest: the internet has changed just about every aspect of our lives in in twenty twenty. It accelerated the shift in the ways that we communicate, the ways that we collaborate, the ways we meet, the ways that we engage with one another. It accelerated that shift probably by five or 10 years. You have so many more people right now who are kind of going, you know, that Zoom thing and getting together with people and talking like that, that's really not that bad. It's a pretty powerful place to do your work um, when you have a committed group of people who want to support you and, and, you know, share the work that you're doing. So I just think it's a, it's a different mindset that people are having. And now also one last layer to that is I don't think there's any question any longer that higher education is on the precipice of a real transformation because what you're seeing, what you've seen in the past year is a lot of schools who are now economically almost unable to continue to function. You're seeing a lot of people who are going, this is what I'm paying for. You talk about K through 12 parents kind of going, this is what school is about. Then you look at higher education parents are going, wait, this is what I'm paying for. And so I think that whole narrative around education, the idea that, you know, you go to school and you take these classes and you get these grades and you take these tests and then you go to this college and then you do, I think that whole arc is really being shifted right now. And so um, that's why uh, what's been most kind of heartening and hopeful for me is seeing how many people on the edges are beginning to build different types of schools and different types of experiences for kids to have kids and teachers that don't really look like what we used to have hasn't scaled yet. You know what I mean? It hasn't really Mm -hmm. gotten into the core of the conversation around what school is. But it's definitely having an impact now as there are more and more stories, more and more kinds of experiences that kids and teachers and parents are beginning to talk about that don't look like that thing that we used to do over there. And a lot of people are going, well, why do we keep doing that? Why are we continuing to do that? So that gives us an opening, right? That's not to say that it's easy to change it. It's not. In fact, I think it's much easier to probably, not easy, but it's easier to do what you did, which is to start a school based on a certain uh, grounding of values and frames and you know lenses and pedagogies that may be more relevant for the moment that we're in than it is to try to change a school It's been around for a hundred years or fifty years and is so deeply rooted in you know these these kinds of systems and rhythms that everybody has is just used to and accustomed to. it's hard, hard work to move off of that. Is something that mm-hmm. um, moves power away from teachers to students or power away from administrators to teachers, you know, in classrooms and whatever else. So it's difficult, difficult work.
1: Yeah. And I agree. And that's a big part of why we founded a school. You found us out there um, is, you know, we tried <laughs> to work with the school districts and tried to make a difference and a change and tried to create an experiment even within the district. And there was just no interest. And we're like, okay, well, let's, let's go do this. And then we can bring it back and share how we did it and show how it works and then hopefully bring it into other schools and other districts to make changes there once we have an example of what we're doing. But you talked a lot about college too. And part of what I've been doing with these interviews is not only talking to thought leaders and leaders in the field like yourself, but also talking to students and getting their perspective on the world and what's happening in high school students and college students. And I spoke to a college student. She just finished college in Stanford, and now she's joined a coding boot camp, like one of those fringe alternative programs that you know right. you can do six weeks of coding. I think her program is six months of coding. I think it's three months of a solid boot camp learning programming experience, and then three months of an internship in a company. And then you can get hired on, you know, to a lot of the major tech companies after six months without a college degree. And she's doing this after college because she realizes and sees the value. But the one answer I got from all of the students and high school students and college students that I've talked to, because I asked them kind of that same question. Do you think college is necessary? Is this still something we need to do? And they don't talk about the degree or the classes or their professors or what they've learned. They talk about the experience and how it's really the only time in life where you get this group of people who are all around your age and going through the same thing, experiencing it together in that group, in that community, and that camaraderie, which of course is something right now, being that college isn't in session and most places aren't on campus, that they're really, really missing. But then I think that partly becomes the question too, is how do we develop those relationships without the college experience, if we deem college eventually unnecessary, or if it needs to change, or more for what that looks like.
2: I think that the idea that uh, you know you're paying for the experience. I mean, it's valid. You know, I, I have a son who's in college right now. Um, my daughter didn't go to college. Shocking, I know. She's 23, and she's she's absolutely fine. She's kind of creating her own curriculum around biohacking and health and wellness and. Um, I have no doubt that she'll be fine. You know, she took some college courses, but she didn't have that experience and, uh, she seems, she seems perfectly okay. (laughs) So I I get that, that again, that's the story that we tell. And I I don't, I'm not suggesting that the college experience isn't powerful, but it's, it's an expensive experience, um, for a lot of people. And, um, if, if you're going to have kids who pay a lot of money to go to really high, you know, these very high reputation schools. And then come out and do a six-month program in coding so they can get a job. um, That's going to be a a story that is going to change pretty quickly, I think. And we're going to find different ways of doing community. We already are. You know, I mean, that's that's never been static. And we're shifting into very different ways of doing learning communities and experiencing those social aspects of life. All of that, I think, is is changing. And you know what's what's interesting. So I'm I'm a big fan of Yuval Harari, who wrote uh, Sapiens and and uh, Twenty One Lessons for the 21st Century. And one of them was around education. But he he talks in general about this idea that in this moment we're just totally in between stories and just about everything. We're moving from these traditional ways of thinking about how the world operates, how we operate in the world, um, what the expectations are, what the norms are, to this other kind of narrative or this other space that we're not really quite sure what it looks like, but we know it's not that. And so what happens is in the middle of it, where we are right now, it gets very anxiety, very anxious, um, very nihilistic, almost, you know, very kind of just dress producing as we're kind of trying to figure it out. So yeah, that's why in a lot of reasons, in a lot of ways, I think that's why this moment is fraught is because we just don't know exactly where we're going. The world seemed to be a little bit more predictable 10 years ago than it is now. And so with all of this stuff, it just, it's like, do I send my kid to college, even though it's going to probably, you know, put me back years financially? or do i take the risk quote unquote of not doing that and instead just paying for a 6 month program in coding and you know there're going to be just a lot more choices that people are going to have to make and that's a good thing but it's also very anxiety you know raising and and very difficult for a lot of people to navigate it's nicer to have those kind of safe stories that we know we're going to be okay if we go down this path but we don't know that any longer
1: That's also exciting because now instead of this being the predictable path, there are so many different paths and so many options and so many things, you know, that young people can do. And and even as we get older that we can do to create the lives that we want to have, which I think is really interesting, although definitely, you know, creates uncertainty for sure. So I want to ask you one more question, and this is off topic of everything that we've talked about. But as founder of an elementary school, I love to ask people what their memories are from elementary school. So if you think back, if there's any teacher or (laughs) subject or project or story that you wrote or anything that stands out in your mind from those elementary school days.
2: Well, that was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're making me go way back in the recesses of my brain here. Um, one teacher I remember from elementary school more than other was my first grade teacher, Mrs. Spalding, And um, I don't have a lot of memories of that, but I do remember that she was so playful and that we laughed a lot in that classroom. We had a, there was just a lot of joy. It wasn't regimented. You know, it wasn't like um, there were a lot of expectations that were being put on us academically or, mm-hmm. you know, socially or whatever else. It was just a place to come and and be a kid more than anything else. And I think that, you know, that, that ethos is just so important for younger kids in school. It teaches them that school can be a place that, that is joyful, where you can learn about things that are fun and, and do it in playful ways. And uh, yeah, I just remember her classrooms being really bright and singing and, you know, doing uh, a lot of projects. I don't ever remember, like, practicing anything academic. Um, I don't remember doing too much of that in my elementary school, although I'm sure that by third or fourth grade, I was probably doing more of that. But mm-hmm. yeah, Mrs. Balding's class. And I, I remember I have the class photo in my head. Actually, I can see myself. I had a little vest, sweater <laughs> vest on and stuff, but um, she was great. And, and she made me want to want to show up every day. And I think that that's uh, that's the best thing a teacher can do, you know, is is just make it so that kids want to be there and that they want to learn and that they're able to learn about things that they really care about in their own ways.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great lesson and great thing to keep in mind. And I love that the thing that you remember is laughing all the time, that it was so much fun. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for making us think and digging into deep questions. I really appreciate uh, your thoughts and, and your time.
2: Thanks, Tanya, appreciate it. Stay well.
0: You too. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere, for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well, no matter where your educational journey may lead.